Fan games provide a strange gray area for game design. Now, I'm not talking so much about the legality of these titles, since that's a whole separate can of worms to open, but rather in how these games are regarded for taking inspiration. Off the bat, being inspired is not an uncommon thing when it comes to game design, or any creative outlet for that matter. We're all shaped by the projects and works that came before us, and we advance culturally through picking and choosing the best bits of these products and remixing them into something new. Heck, it's the reason we see so many fantastic spiritual successors lining the indie scene these days. With titles like Shovel Knight and Freedom Planet being hailed for elegantly paying homage to the 8 and 16-bit platformers of the past. Despite their influences, however, these games can and are judged outside of the scope of their predecessors, but rightfully for their own merits, since these games can perfectly stand on their own. The line gets blurry though when you start throwing the original inspiration's name straight into the title. You see, fan games by nature utilize the elements of their source material to build something new for other fans of the series. And because of this, it can be easy to try and view these games through the lens of how they fit in with that previously established brand. But is this a fair standard for critiquing these games' designs? Well, if you're asking me, I'd argue that although these games take clear inspiration, they shouldn't be judged by how closely they follow the series' pattern but rather how they handle their own respectively established themes. Hey all you game fans in the stands, I'm Skip the Tutorial, and this is Boss Battle Breakdown. A deep dive into the ins and outs of boss design. To kick off our discussion, let's take a closer look at Milton Guasti's 2016 PC release of AM2R, otherwise known as another Metroid 2 remake. Serving as an unofficial revision of the Metroid series' monochromatic black sheep, the game sought to bring the title to the standard of the later Metroidvania pattern seen in Super Metroid and Metroid Zero Mission. While this title made multiple key changes in the visual design, screen size, and map arrangement, one of its largest shifts to Samus' original return on the Game Boy was the revamped boss design. For those who are unfamiliar, this title is largely built off the protagonist's genocidal mission through the planet SR-388's Metroid species. With a constant number remaining displayed in the HUD, the player's purpose is never forgotten during their journey. To complete this task, you'll be working your way through a fixed number of the creatures in various fights, all the while tracking their progression from jelly-looking things to horrendous lizard-like creatures. And on a surface level, AM2R captures this, keeping the same flow of diminishing the Metroid population as you work ever deeper into the core of the foreign planet. Yet on top of this, the game also features the addition of the new weapons trial machine, fittingly named the Tester, in one of the game's later areas. Originating thematically from the original's blank canvas visuals and numerous arsenal upgrades, this boss plays out as a pure bullet hell brawl, as the player bobs and weaves between countless phases of lasers, missiles, and energy blasts. You're set with destroying the four weaponized quadrants of the robot until finally disrupting its core. Now this is one heck of a boss fight. It features a rip-roaring sense of energy and pacing as the player spin jumps up and down the massive walls of the tower to avoid the non-stop onslaught of artillery. Partnered within the game's established themes and concepts of that area, it's a fitting conclusion to that section's bit of play. Except when compared to the original source material. There's no way a fight like this could have played out within the original title, even if hardware limitations allowed it. As SR Hollywell's amazing piece, A Maze of Murderscapes, mentions, games about killing should probably make you uncomfortable. They shouldn't be carefully crafted to be pleasant. Metroid 2 is openly about killing. It makes me uncomfortable with wordless specificity. This is one of the game's saving graces. Arguably, in a title so focused around the relentless destruction of a local population, there's not a whole lot of room for a bombastic, explosive set-piece in a weapons factory. So if we were to take this fight within the viewpoint of a proper remake of Metroid 2's themes, the design doesn't entirely fit. However, when viewed within the scope of the title's other influences, like Super Metroid, where fights such as the gigantic multi-screen Kraid brawl are unapologetically these magnificent spectacles of fighting, it's both satisfying and thematically sound, and just overall a good boss battle. 
Switching gears, let's dive into another notorious Nintendo DMCA takedown of 2016. JV and involuntary Twitch's Pokemon Uranium. Taking 9 years of development, this title chucked in 150 new pocket monsters housed within the new Tandor region, offering up an impressive amount of content. Including the abilities to trade and battle online, akin to main series installments, this game garnered over a million downloads before deciding to respect Nintendo's wishes and halt support for the game. So in a game like this, which is very much a product of its inspiration, how does the conclusion stack up? After fighting your way through the iconic pattern of eight thematic gym leaders and finally entering as a participant in the Tandor Championship, you battle within the 32-match elimination tournament realistically meaning the commonplace five-battle structure of the Pokemon League from the main titles for the player's perspective. Reaching the end, as you prepare to square up for a rematch against your rival Theo, a nuclear-afflicted Actan interrupts the fight. After defeating this level 80 beast, it temporarily joins your party in preparation for a full-out match with a mysterious antagonist, Kiri, who uses an absolutely beefed-up Uranus as their only Pokemon. Now, when compared to your average of level 70s across your team by this point, that level difference manifests in some pretty dangerous ways during the match. Using the remarkably powerful 19th type, Nuclear, this irradiated powerhouse can sweep through a vast array of types through the use of moves like Atomic Punch and Overheat. Furthermore, the battle gains an especially tough field condition with Uranged Chernobyl ability, turning the match into a particularly great nuclear fallout that erodes through non-nuclear or steel types, while also dampening the damage of super effective moves on those same nuclear-typed beasts. With all of these aspects combined, the battle becomes a full-out blood match, where it's not uncommon to sacrifice some of your weaker players on the team as you methodically whittle away through the boss's health. It's intense, and it provides for a memorable experience within the game's arc. The inspirations of the battle shine through as well, with the Actan assist mirroring the preliminary capture of Zekrom or Reshiram, depending on your game, in Black and White's Battle with N. Moreover, the high levels fit right in with the often-praised endgame duels with champion Cynthia in Diamond, Pearl, and Platinum and especially with the level up squad that Red uses atop Mount Silver in Gen 2, and particularly in its Heart Gold and Soul Silver remakes. But if we were to frame this game along these famed series conclusions from the other titles, it just wouldn't fit in the picture. Only one Pokemon defining the final fight is unheard of in one of these titles because it just wouldn't make sense with their themes. In a game where you battle not only eight themed gym leaders, but also the original typed batch from Kanto, a brawl like the one with Red works best as a very conclusion to the player's knowledge of type advantage strategies. And heck, you're not going to be seeing a main series Pokemon game just finishing up with a battle with Red and his superpowered Pikachu as the conclusion. But take Uranium as its own entity, and consider the Curie fights as a conclusion of the game's nuclear-focused gameplay and story beats, and it's tough to fault this thematic wrap-up. So to break our pattern here of fan games that were shut down by Nintendo, let's instead focus in on their official representative in the field. 2015's Super Mario Maker, providing players with the tools to build their own Mario levels across four different game styles. There was a tremendous amount of opportunity for the creatives of this fanbase to expand their ideas within the title. And after doing that over 7 million times by 2016, there's plenty of examples within the vast array of levels that show the innate sense of inspiration that this game provides. And among the expanse of Don't Move and Troll levels stands out one of the most bongers experiences the mustachioed plumber has ever starred in. Booting up Kiavik's level, the player is led along a singular corridor before entering a pipe and being treated to the sight of the monstrously huge Mecha Bowzilla, serving up one of the best comedic set pieces a Mario title has ever seen. As this mechanized amalgamation of Chain Chomps, Cannons, and Bowser Jr. himself chases after you, the player must maneuver their way along the oncoming appearances of platforms as they work toward their rightward goal. After destroying the legs of the gigantic mechanation with a P-Switch, you further explore the level until entering another crucial rematch with a robotic boss. 
This time, as you duck and cover your way under its hover path while slipping and sliding past the mouths of hungry chain chomps, the machine eventually reaches another opportunity for the player to smash its hole once again. Traversing through another intermission of platforming challenge, the player gets one more battle with the boss's machinery as you sprint along vines under hot pursuit of Kid Koopa's clown copter. Trapping in an encasement of one-way paths, you gain the opportunity to ride right through that last pipe into Bowser Jr.'s arena. Taking up the necessary red shells, you finally time that last hit through the circular room's window and snag the key for your proper victory. Kicking down that final axe, you beat the level and make sure to give it a star on your way out for the impressive job done with its level design. Surprisingly, for similarities to other Mario bosses, there aren't nearly as many ties to draw between this fight and the other Bowser brawls. The most fitting comparison would be the famous conclusion of Bowser's Castle in New Super Mario Bros. Wii, where Kamek grows the big baddie even bigger and the player must escape through an ever-shifting landscape of fireballs and destruction as the lava swimming boss chases you on your way to Peach. Compellingly about this boss fight and others in the series, a significant reason something like Mecha Bowzilla stands out from them is that they have the benefit of being specially coded and designed battles, instead of hodgepodge creations made from drag-and-drop level elements. So there's no chance that a fight like this would be close to the same thematic conclusion that one of these other brawls has, especially since anything in this game wouldn't receive the same luxury of being established and expanded upon in earlier mechanics in the levels. But in a game based around the expansive creativity of Mario players within a limited toolkit, then it manages to do something here that even Nintendo wouldn't attempt with their pre-made levels in the game. A fan game doesn't have to serve as a faithful yet unofficial sequel to its source material to have good bosses. And the converse is true as well. There could be an incredibly true form installment in a series that lacks the sense of gameplay theme cohesion in its bosses. And it would probably look something like 2017's Sonic Mania. Now don't get me wrong here, I thoroughly enjoyed a lot of this title's original and referential design choices, and I'm 100% of the mind that Christian Whitehead should be revered for the saving grace he provided the Sonic franchise. That being said, the issues I have with the game's bosses are a product of its by-the-book nature to the 2D Sonic games that came before it. Looking at the shared Green Hill Zone at the beginning of this title and the Blue Hedgehog's roots back in his first game, they both feature that recognizable Wrecking Ball design of Dr. Robotnik's metallic eggs, confining the player to a single screen. You must spin jump on the various spheres as you avoid the harmful and vulnerability phases until finally exploding his machine and coming out victorious. Now in both cases, I believe the earlier emphasized sense of platforming flow and precision speed is lost by keeping the player steady to one location for the fight. Sure, the battles can be defeated with some measure of literal speed for speedrunners, but the momentum of the mechanics is lost in these fairly stationary battles. Mania admittedly does a great job at emulating this same flow and keeps the fight directly in line with the Sonic series, for better or for worse. Inspiration is a wonderful thing for game design. It provides a jumping off point for designers to create the games that evoke the same emotions as the ones they loved playing while growing up. It's crucial to keep in mind though, both in how we design and critique these experiences, that the games should not be entirely judged by their strict adherence to the paths laid out by their inspirations. Not only is this limiting an emphasis on innovation, but also in the sense that different players can walk away with varied interpretations as to why they enjoy the game. I think that Amr al puts it great in the Picture in a Frame article. By positioning particular games as the blueprint, this limits the ideas of what constitutes as a legitimate approach and erases alternatives. It doesn't allow space to deviate from those ideas, or allow games to be understood on their own terms. We need to judge these games, and especially their bosses, as products of their own themes and conclusions not as just some out-of-place alternatives that serve as filler between true installments.